0: Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Well, good morning again. Welcome back to Church History. We are about halfway through. We passed the halfway point of this class. Um, So we will wrap up the Middle Ages today. Next week, we will um, get to the Reformation on Reformation Sunday, and I actually did not plan it out that way, although you probably don't believe me. But, so next week we will cover the Reformation on Reformation Day, so in God's providence. That's pretty neat. Um, On this day in church history, on October 22nd, 1903, Susanna Spurgeon, the wife of the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, passed away. She, let's see, Their marriage had lasted 36 years until Charles' death in 1892, and she had engaged in many ministries alongside her husband. By the time she died in 1903, through the Book Fund and the Pastor's Aid Fund that she had started and set up, Susie had raised enough money to give away over 200,000 books to impoverished pastors. She also provided them with funds, clothing, stationery, and other necessary items. So. Often the the women are forgotten in church history. So, okay, let me open us a prayer and we will get started. Lord, we thank you again for another wonderful day, another Lord's day you've given us. We thank you for the day of rest and how um, we are not just made to work, although um, we do have works that you have given us to work out, as we heard this morning, um, that our faith would be real and that we would... um, evidence our faith through the works, but it's You working in us, Lord. We ask that You would be with us this morning, that Your Spirit would be with us. As we look to the past of Your church and its many faults, but also its many uh, successes and pointers to You, we ask that You would edify us in, in those good and bad examples, those to avoid and those to look to, and those that help us grow in Christ. Lord, be with me as I share uh, this morning, and I pray um, that uh, people would just learn something, be strengthened in their faith, and just have a greater appreciation for your church and how you minister to us through your church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, last week I had finished up with Anselm and his doctrine of the atonement, which was uh, um, substitutionary atonement. It wasn't quite um, satisfaction theory of atonement, not substitutionary theory of the atonement. And Anselm was part of the scholastics, and um, the scholastics were those who were trying to synthesize uh, theological thought and put it in a way um, that made it easy for people to talk and understand, and eventually that would lead to the rise of universities. And one gentleman who I didn't quite get to was Aquinas. And um, he would continue on Anselm and is really a stalwart of the Roman Church. Um, today. It is said of him, but I've read somewhere, that he could dictate two or three of his works at the same time to secretaries. So he had a very brilliant mind. And so Anse- or Aquinas would continue the uh, scholastic thought in, in the Roman and the medieval church. Um, but also, you have a lot of teaching being done from the monasteries and from monastic orders. And so I'll briefly talk about them. There were two primary uh, monastic orders, the Franciscans, which came after Francis of Assisi, and the Dominicans. By the height of the Middle Ages, most monks at this time were actually being ordained as clergy. They weren't just monks. They actually would be ordained. Um, This also began to cause some trouble in the church at large because some monks, they were not ordained, And so the monasteries were dependent upon the clergy to provide sacraments, so only the ordained could provide sacraments. Um, But when most of the monks started becoming ordained, there arose this clash between the monks who were ordained and the normal clergy, if you will, who who were ordained. And in the minds of the common person, um, their hearts kind of began divided, you know, who do I look to? And, and also, um, as these tensions would occur, the Pope would begin to exploit these tensions for his own gain. Um, so before we get to this point in time, most of the clergy, which would be considered bishops, um, they did not see that the Pope had the right to establish them in their office. They accepted the Pope as like the overall leader, but not necessarily as the absolute authority to establish bishops in the um, congregations but as the middle ages would advance and the papacy would gain more prestige and power and supremacy over the church at large um, the pope would begin to ordain bishops and establish bishops the pope would also establish um, the monasteries and because he didn't have absolute control of establishing bishops he would begin to um, gain his power and centralize his power through establishing monasteries and would use his power of establishing monasteries for his own gain because then he could, he could. the Pope gave the, the monasteries their orders and so the monasteries derived their authority from the Pope. And so now the Pope began to look to the monasteries to centralize um, his power. And so we come to one of the most infamous popes, Pope Innocent the Third. I don't know why he got the title Innocent. <clears throat> but during this time and period the papacy, could be said to reach its high point of power and influence. He was elected pope, and when he was crowned, these words were spoken to him, Take the tiara and know that thou art the father of princes and kings, the ruler of the world, the vicar on earth of our Savior Jesus Christ. Christ. Any initial
1: reactions?
0: (laughs) So, he was called the Vicar of Christ at his uh, coronation, but later he would change his title and call himself the Vicar of God. So, you can see in the mind of of innocent that he had power in his own mind. Um, He was very ambitious for the authority of the papacy, he insisted that the Pope was infallible in his leadership of the Church, and he involved himself in politics in a number of different areas." All right, so he's pretty famous with his dispute of King John of England. So this is the same King John who was reigning in England when Richard the Lionheart went to the Crusades, and then Richard died and King uh, John became king in 1199. John, uh, Soon found himself alienating members of the church in England and also some of his own barons. When the Archbishop of Canterbury died and a new archbishop had to be appointed, John found himself in trouble with the pope, with Innocent III. John began to confiscate church lands, and Innocent responded by placing the whole realm under interdict. So this was a form of papal disciplinary action, where if the land became under interdict, they technically were excommunicated, and no one in the land could receive sacraments. So at this time, the sacraments um, had begun to change from what we saw in the early church and from um, Pope Gregory, where the sacraments now were the means of getting your grace. And so now if you can't receive the sacraments, the laity the land, you can't participate in the church. and. Ultimately, your salvation is at stake.
1: Um, one thing, since you're talking to the former Presbyterians, you might be a good to point out that there are, at that point, seven sacraments in the church. So you're not just talking about baptism and, and uh, communion. So to speak, you're talking about marriage, you're talking about uh, extreme unction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you're talking about when he placed that whole country under interdict. He knew exactly what he was doing. And the pressure of the interdict is supposed to cause so much unrest in the country that it drives the leadership back to
0: people. This is the whole country been excommunicated? So I'll pretty much sum up what Brian had just said. What that meant was children being born couldn't be baptized. The dead couldn't receive their last, or the dying couldn't receive the last rites. The living could not receive the sacrament of penance or the mass. Um, this was a, in the minds of the many of the common people, it was a matter of life or death. Right. Um, if they couldn't be baptized, they couldn't be buried with the within the rites of the church, and technically, in their minds, their souls were at stake. So this is a pretty serious thing, and the pope is not messing around. Um, and so eventually, um, John would have- submit. Um, he had really no choice here, and it brought him, brought, kind of brought him back. Um, the Pope lifted the interdict. Um, uh, let's see. But the Pope also went so far to anathematize John personally, so excommunicate John, and depose him from office. However, these were really formal actions because Italy is a lot farther, pretty far away from England. It's not as the Pope was going to come personally. Um, but what it did do is um, his barons, that were um, in England put a lot of pressure on him, and eventually it was that the situation in England was leading up to a possible civil war, and so John's power and influence was severely curtailed by the Pope and what Innocent did to John. So John submits to the Pope, and his barons made a whole bunch of demands, and out of their demands on June fifteenth, twelve fifteen, John signed the Magna Carta. So, Pope's Pope Innocent III's messing around leads to one of the foundational documents in Western society of freedom. So, interesting that he, in one sense, he wasn't overplaying his hand, but in the long game, you know, this would lead to freedoms in, in the English-speaking world. So, the Magna Carta is seen as a foundational document of legal rights. So justice could not be denied or delayed by the monarch. A Person had to be tried by your peers and also declared that taxes could only be raised with the approval of the House of Commons. And this was the beginning of the first small steps to constitutional government and the right of the, the Parliament to have a say in, in making laws. So Pope Innocent, uh, through his actions of, you know, I'm the boss, um, would lead to greater freedoms in the long run. Okay, um, but what does he do? He annuls it. Um, clearly, he doesn't, you know, like what the Magna Carta stands for, um, and so he's remembered for that. He is also remembered for the very confusing doctrine of transubstantiation. Paul. I think John also, Brian, you can correct me, I think John decided, I think he said he signed it under duress and said...
1: John signed it, claimed it was under duress. He's dead within two years after he signed something like that, so it doesn't really... What it does, what the Magna Carta did was the Nobles held the successors of John to them and subsequently, more and more and more of a thing. And that's where you see the split between monarchs in France and the monarchs in England. Where the monarchs in England are somewhat they're held accountable, whereas the monarchs in France continue to absolute monarchs. Which is why when you get to that point you'll see the distinction between the American Revolution and the French Revolution, the constitutionality of the the thought process that goes behind what, what we were able to do with our nominal english groups versus what France did with their history, long history of authoritarianism and absolutism.
0: I don't know what his, the effect of his annulment had. It didn't hurt him at all.
1: That's why you get to the point where you get the battle captivity of the church. What? Just, it was just like
0: you to Come on, man. Let me get there. <laughs> no, I got to get to it today. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So this is all building on it on top of itself over centuries. Yeah, that's that's history. Yeah. So uh, you you draw a theme of the papacy of its power and influence, you know, rising, right? Um, all right. So he's also known for calling the Fourth Lateran Council where transubstantiation will become the official teaching of the Roman Church about the Lord's Supper. Transubstantiation is a very confusing doctrine. I don't fully understand it myself, but it has Aristotelian thought and roots behind it, where the bread and wine of the Lord's table actually become the blood and body of Christ, and that what you're eating and tasting is the blood and body of Christ, but what you feel and taste on the inside is... It's a technical term, an ac- accident. I think that's what it is, where... Uh, it's, very, it's very confusing, but... Yeah. Um, where... trying to put this in a simple term. Where it's still there, you can feel and taste it, but you actually are tasting and, uh, the blood and body of Christ himself. And this happens the blood the the bread and the wine when they're sitting here before the priest comes up is actual bread and wine but then it transforms transubstantiates into the blood and body of christ himself when the priest holds up the elements and the roman church says a miracle actually occurs and that is why in the roman church you will see them genuflect and bow almost at the at the elements because it is Christ, according to the Roman Church, it is Christ there, phys- physically there in the elements. So Innocent calls the council that established this doctrine as the official doctrine of the Roman Church. Steve.
2: And that's why they have to consume everything.
0: And it can't fall on the... Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, you would some. You, I think you still see it. I haven't been in a Roman service in a long time, but they have little plates underneath when people partake so it doesn't go on the right. on the, the ground It also that at this point uh, later on that the common people um, I think they weren't allowed to take eventually were prevented from taking the wine because if they spilled the wine they spilled the the blood and the blood of Christ himself and so that they're out missing out on their the sacrament that is supposed to dispense grace so Brian can say something
1: power move that refers back to what you were originally talking about between the ordination and the clergy, the monks versus the priests.
0: <laughs> Please elaborate. Well, no. If,
1: if you can't have laity, you know, unordained people handling something so sacred, mm-hmm. you've got to have the training. Got to be able to do it, because, I mean, remember why Martin Luther was so terrified when he first, the first time he did. Yeah,
0: because it's Christ there.
2: Yeah.
1: Supposedly he said he was literally shaking, he was scared to death, he was going to mess it up, because of this transubstantiation doctrine.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so it does give more authority to the, the clergy, and then um, the Pope who will consolidate his power around the monasteries, he would begin to ordain them. The bishops, for the most part, would now start to fall in line with um, ex- receiving their their ordination from the Pope himself. Um, that was a fight over a long time. Um, but then they would start to submit. A fight that I'll talk about briefly would was, was become between the popes and councils, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I wanted to show you a chart uh, from the year 600 just past the reformation of the expanses and growth of the Roman church and the, uh, the obscuring of the gospel. Can you all read that okay? Yeah. So you can see almost a thousand years of um, growth of the Roman church. It's in imperialism, how the gospel, the simple gospel gets obscured and the church gains influence and power. So we are around between 1215 and 1324 right now. Really, what we what we think of the Roman Church today doesn't really become fully, truly solidified until at the Council of Trent, which is considered the Counter-Reformation. But most of the doctrines and beliefs of the Roman Church that we see today come out of centuries before. Um, at some point, there were... Doctrines floating around the church, but it wasn't the official doctrine. So it was okay to espouse it or be against it. But once it became official, if you were against it, then the Roman church had no patience for that. And we'll see some of that today. Um, So the Roman church began piling on rules and traditions on top of the gospel over the centuries. The Roman church also began to truly assert its authority over all other Christians, and this is most expressed in 1302, when Pope Boniface issued the papal bull *The Unum Sanctum*, which said this: "There is one body and one head of this one and only Catholic Church, not two heads like a monster, and that is Christ and Christ's vicars, Peter and the successor of Peter." Both the spiritual and the civil sword are in the power of the church. We declare, state, define, and pronounce that it is absolutely necessary to salvation for every human being to be subject to the Roman pope. What do you all think of the, this unum sanctum? What do you all think of the statement? 1302. Well, I
1: think it cuts out the Eastern Church. I think the Catholic Church has a long history of consolidating power and to this day it still does things in more subtle ways to consolidate power. For example,
2: the Catholic Jew Bible lacks context. Each section is taken away from the surrounding context to make it harder to interpret. Mm-hmm. Like, this is neither surprising nor shocking in any way. It's really, it's really interesting how the Pope, who have what army does the Pope really have? Right, and that he was able to steal this power from all these king. Because this is, I mean, it's England and it's France and it's Germany. He's got all these different monarchies and they're all going, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Like, how does it, like, it's just, yeah, it's weird, yeah. Because he has the power, communication.
0: Right, he has the power. Is the spiritual power to influence temporal power. hmm
2: Not exactly a separation of roles and responsibilities of civil government and the church. No. It's easier to corrupt if you have one ultimate person.
0: Yep. Yeah. So remember when I started the Middle Ages, I, th- I said, try to think of this period of time as what would it look like to build a Christian civilization on Earth? And so the pope, the papacy, clearly thinks, well, I'm the one that's got to be in charge of this civilization. And in effect, they were, in a, in a sense, because they had the power of the church to excommunicate. However, it wouldn't quite last. As I said, Innocent III, scholars consider that the height of the papacy. So if you're at the height, what goes up must come down. And so now we actually start to look at the, the decline of the papacy. Um... At this point in time, uh, 14th century, French kings had begun to gain enormous power, and um, after the pope and his successor died, I think after yeah, Boniface died, French cardinals would elect a new French pope. This pope and the next six popes were tools for the French king, but the cardinals in Rome believed only the pope could reside in Rome, so they elected a pope. At one time, or at the same time, there were three different popes. Now, this this gets gets really into the weeds of politics and going back and forth, and what pope was which. But this period of time is known as the Avignon Papacy, or they called it the Babylonian Exile because the popes were outside of Rome in France. And so you had battles between popes, and battles between councils, and what the main theme of this all was, who had ultimate authority? The Pope. But the council said, well, we elected you. But the Pope said, well, I can declare you null and void. So they would go back and forth, and another council would arise and and elect a new Pope. And then they would have two competing Popes, and so a third council would convene and say, well, let's depose both these Popes and elect a third one, and this would be the true Pope. And of course, those first two Popes don't like that, so they're fighting back. So anyways, it's it's a big mess. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But what the point is is now you have um, battles between councils and popes, and the pope's power actually starts to become limited, and councils would gain some power. This would go on for a little bit until that, okay, eventually there would come back to you'd have one pope remaining, and then the council's power would decrease. But the pope was on notice at this point in time that his ultimate authority now was curtailed by councils and people not willing to submit to uh, an ultimate uh, Pope. And so his power begins to decline. And at the same time, the major period in history starts to come up called the Renaissance. Okay. The Renaissance would begin the rise of nationalism in nation for nation states. Um, but before we get to that, we need to get to the thought of what the Renaissance was and is. So Europe was entering a new phase in time of history. Um, we had these um, old ancient works now coming back to light and people are starting to read them. And um, the Renaissance would be like the wave of the future for Europe. And its rallying cry was ad fontes, back to the sources. Let's go back to the sources. So. Remember I said the, the scholastics, they started writing and they wrote in ways that the theologians could talk to each other. So the language became very technical and eventually become very dry. And for most people, who, those who could read, would become boring. Well, they, at this point in time, they would discover writings of like Cicero, and they would compare it to Aquinas' writings. And like, well, Cicero's Latin is way better. It's so much more beautiful than Aquinas. Why? Well, let's start reading. Let me start finding out. Reading more of the ancients. They had, um, they were better, better writers. And so, if the old Latin is good and the old ancient Latin is good, what about the ancient Greek? So start going back to the sources. Start reading the old ancient sources. One Renaissance thinker who was encouraging this line of thought was Petrarch. Um, the, the Scholastics did not like him, obviously, because he's like, well, we don't need to read the Scholastics, let's read the Ancients. Um, he starts to criticize the Scholastics, and he wrote a great essay called On His Own Ignorance and That of Many Others. He goes after the Scholastics for their claim to be higher learning, and he says they didn't know anything. He would point back to the elegant writing of the ancients, to Cicero, the excellent style of the Latin. And then, as people would begin to read the Latin, they would start to turn to the ancient Greek texts. Um, And at this point in time, only a very, very limited amount of people could read Greek. Remember, the Greek texts were in the East, where the Byzantine Empire was basically fighting off the Muslims for centuries. And the Muslims had a large geographical area of the East. However, in 1453, Constantinople fell to the Turks. And people evacuated um, the city and the area and fled west. And what did they bring with them? The Greek texts. And so now the ability to actually read the ancient Greek text became available in the west. And so people started going back to the Greek text to start reading the ancient texts. Um, So from this, um, the, ability to, the, ability, the ability to study and possess Greek texts was greatly um, emphasized, and now opportunities arose. And then, if we can go from Latin to Greek, well, now why not read the Hebrew? Right? So you can see their line of thought. And now people could actually go and begin to look at the original texts, the original language of the scriptures, and start to read the scriptures for themselves. Go ahead, Jeff
2: to think of at this time the people that could read were the
0: scholars, yeah, monks. So, what are we about? Yeah, the scholars, the monks, the teachers, not the common people yet. Yeah. At that point, you have yeah, you already have the universities.
1: Scholars going from university to university, to university, it's there, there ten- and that's all they're doing they're taking things back to the border, Which is how Aquinas was able to do Aristotle. He did Aristotle from the Arabs have translated it from Greek to Arabic, and then some of the Western scholars have translated it from Arabic to Latin. So there was also that kind
0: of Yeah. So they have access to the ancient texts now that they did not really have access to. There is also this understanding that the ancient texts now were more beautiful and better than the, the scholastics. So let's start reading that stuff. At the same time, you get the printing press. It Would come a little bit later, but the printing press would come about. We all know about that. How that impacted the Reformation, allowed books to be pre- uh, printed more quickly and spread more quickly. Um, so you got all these things in history going on. This, we're still not even to the Reformation yet, right? You also get not just the scriptures themselves, but you've get the church fathers like Augustine who are now being printed. Um, people began to read Augustine and say, wait a minute, what Augustine is saying is not what we're hearing in the church. And so when I mentioned that Pope Gregory had begun to change Augustine's understanding of grace, they could compare and be like, wait a second, there's something different here. The Greek, Greek fathers were being printed, Chrysostom, another another Greek fathers, so people were able to see what the ancient Greeks thought, what the ancient um, pastors, if you will, how the, what they wrote, what their sermons were about, so they could read those now. Paul? Uh,
1: you mentioned that they had access to Augustine, guest in Like, the, line, and play, and the church fathers with the popes, the cardinals, and all of the higher level people in the church? Would they have had access to that prior to that?
0: Oh, they would, yeah. But more, more and more people now are getting okay. access to it. So yeah. It sort of of I wouldn't say suppression, maybe just they didn't go back to it. Why would they? Yeah.
1: Thanks, they considered <laughs> themselves the authority. Why would they
0: Other things happened. Let's see. Do I have it here? No, we'll get there in a second. Um, Remember when I said the donation of Constantine, the document that gave um, the Pope authority in the West that was supposedly given to uh, the Pope from Constantine himself? Well, the guys being able to read this older Latin could compare the old Latin with today's Latin, or older Latin, like 4th century Latin to 7th century Latin, which is when this document was written, and they could say, wait a second, this document that apparently gave all this authority to the Pope was written in the 7th century, even though it was said to come from the 4th century, therefore it is a fake, and so this would begin to more undermine the Pope's power and authority by going back to the actual ancient documents. All right, and then we get to Erasmus, who we most likely know with his debates with Luther, but he was a great Greek scholar, and he was able to provide a new translation of the Bible from Greek into Latin. He published a critical Greek text of the New Testament, and next to it, a fresh Latin translation of the New Testament. Um, The church at this point had not really thought about a new translation, especially in Latin, and so they've had this Latin New Testament for about 1,000 years or so. Um, going back to when Jerome, the Vulgate, when he had translated the Greek text into Latin. So that's what the, the church's standard text was for about a 1,000 years. Suddenly, things would become alive. One of the biggest things that really interests me was dealing with the sacrament of penance. So penance means go and do do this, do something to um, receive forgiveness. According to Jerome, it said in the text, and in, in his translation, you go and do penance. And he says, Jesus says, go and do penance. And that's where the sacrament of penance comes from. But when people read Erasmus' Greek translation, it says, not go and do penance, but Repent. And so a translation error, um, this is just one example, a translation error led to the foundation of some doctrine in the church. And so Erasmus could show that, no, the church has erred here because of a bad translation. But no one could really check and see it in the West because they didn't have access to these texts. And so this is Erasmus' contribution to really the Reformation, that a proper translation of the text gives us the proper language of Christ himself and his instructions to us. And so you've got all these things going on. Now we start to get a better understanding of the Scriptures. And so I kind of hope you can see how this is starting to lead towards Luther and and the Reformation. But we got to get there to two guys before we do that. And these are usually called the pre-Reformers. The first one is John Wycliffe, 1328-1384, to considered... The morning star of the Reformation. As a quick aside, if you ever want to stump Dennis in church history, ask him who the morning star of the Reformation is and tell him I sent you. (laughs) So Wycliffe is the morning star of the Reformation. Really, it refers to that, that star that you see at the darkest point just before the light breaks. right? So Wycliffe is considered the morning star. He wrote, the Pope is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Wycliffe was born around 1330. He studied at Oxford. He became a lecturer in theology and biblical studies. He was able to see firsthand the abuses of the church, um, specifically regarding politics and power struggles. In contrast to the Unum Sanctum that I read earlier, Wycliffe said, no, the Pope is not the head of the church, only Christ is. So the Pope condemned him. He had friends in high places though and his condemnation had little effect at this time. His students actually rallied in his support, which would um, show further evidence of the papacy beginning to weaken. He wrote against papal authority and against Pope having rule over civil matters. Wycliffe held a deep view of the authority of the Scriptures and perhaps his biggest impact was he believed that everyone should be able to read the Bible in their own native language. Um, At this point, the Roman Church only permitted the scriptures in Latin, and this was the the language of the elite and the educated, not the common, everyday man language. This is the language across the whole geopolitical area, not German, not English, right? And Wycliffe said, no, everyone should be able to read this text for themselves in their own native language. And so he translated the, the Latin text into Middle English, and he distributed copies. He died of a stroke, but his influence would eventually come to have a profound impact on those who would lead the Reformation. His impact was so hated by the Roman Church that eventually he was declared a heretic after his death. His bones were exhumed, burned, and thrown into the River Swift. Wycliffe's ashes being thrown into the River Swift was a, was a tributary of the other river, Avon, inspired this verse. The Avon to the Severn runs, the Severn to the sea, and Wycliffe's dust shall spread abroad, wide as the waters be." And so, I mean, that's really fast with Wycliffe, but his impact, that's why they call him the Morning Star, his impact, uh, scriptures should be in the common people. What does Luther do? He translates Scriptures into German. Um, He writes against the Pope. What does also Luther do? He says the Pope is not the head of the church, he also says councils can err that only the scriptures are a final authority. And so Wycliffe is saying some of the things that Luther would say later on. The other guy we get is Jan Hus from the Czech Republic. Born in 1369, he became the priest of Prague in the Czech Republic. He was inspired by Wycliffe, and he held to the authority of the scriptures, which again led him to challenge many views of the Roman Church. He wrote against papal authority and indulgences. So, Luther would also deal with against indulgences. He proposed a translation of the Bible into the Czech language. But for his views, he was martyred, and he was condemned at the same time when the church decided to posthumously condemn Wycliffe. So, he, Hus, and Wycliffe were both condemned at the same time by the Roman church. On the shoulders of these two giants is what Luther would stand upon to begin the Reformation. So that's what I'll talk about next week. So again, I'd, that was really, really quick. And to stay on task for the end of the year, I had to go through that quick because we have about seven weeks left to get through everything. So from this point on, when I when we talk about the Reformation, what I would like to do, just because there's so much, I'm going to slowly like an inverted triangle and get us to where we are in this congregation today for the most part, in the the PCA, because there's so much. But I won't leave the the wider church. I won't ignore completely the wider church, but that's kind of my goal from here on out to get us to the history of where we are today, because there's so much going on. All right, any questions? Jeff?
2: On your timeline of
1: chronologies of what happened in one year, the last Mm -hmm. one talked about uh, apocryphal book declared canon by a council of Trent. It's one of those things that I'm worried
2: about. So the Bible that we read today does not include the Apocrypha of the Roman Church. I believe to this day, kills people. But prior to that was the Bible we consider to be the Bible of the Bible of the
0: So the Roman they they always had the Apocrypha. They did not have it its status as canon until. Trent. Um, It was always considered helpful, good history, very helpful. Some in the Roman church did believe it was Scripture, but it wasn't official yet. Never became. That's why I said you you could have different views, but until the Roman church made something official, you couldn't go against it. At Trent, they made it official because the Reformers said, no, the Apocryphal is not Scripture. It is helpful. Even some of the Reformers, when they would go and print their Bibles, they would keep the Apocryphal in there because they thought it was very helpful, history, um, but the reformer said, no, this is not Scripture. And so in reaction to that, the Roman Church said, no, yeah, it is. Right? But it only comes at the Council of Trent. And I've heard Roman apologists say, well, we've always said that the Apocryphal is, is part of Scripture. So.
1: I guess one thing that intrigued me about that was that before that, you have in like, 1324, the Pope John the declared that the papal with fallibility ability.
0: So that one, what, what difference does it make What, what, what the biblical canon is. Yeah, I mean, that gets into some technical things of the, the Pope is only infallible if he speaks ex cathedra from the church, out of the church. So like the Pope today, he can say stuff on the news. But if he's not speaking from a technical sense, he's not infallible in that way. It's very confusing. I'm not a Roman scholar, but...
1: There's something called a papal call to have an official papal position.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the point of the, the point of the document is that you have abuses and traditions being piled upon the simple gospel and the simple church of the, you know, first, second century. Cindy?
2: Um, these newer translations, like um, Whitcliffe putting Bible into English from the Latin, is that yeah. Erasmus' is Latin? Or-
0: no, I think it was the, so, I think it's the Vulgate, if I remember correctly. So. You, you have a problematic translation being translated again, so that's, you know, that's problematic. But his point was, they need to read it in, in our language. Right? Yeah.
2: And did the Vulgate
0: come from Septuagint, or did it come from original? Oh, gosh. Jerome got it, he, you know what, I don't know. I need to check on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Paul? He had Septuagint, but I don't know if he translated from Septuagint or from the Hebrew text for the Old Testament. That I don't know. Okay. I thought that
2: was probably
1: true. Yeah. Has the church ever walked back any of these, I guess, traditions or these? Or is there, if not, is there a push today for any pressure for the church to walk back any of this? Well, I mean... Now, Bibles in the Catholic Church are no longer Latin, so to some extent, sure,
2: not enough to make anyone truly happy if they examine this directly closely. But, yeah.
0: There were definitely reforms, especially the Council of Trent. They reformed indulgences, for for one. They recognized, yeah, okay, we went, but, but they didn't get rid of them, technically.
1: I guess, yeah.
0: When you look at their doctrine, it's not just shotgun blasts of random things here and there. It actually fits if you have certain presuppositions. And if you take one down, the others would collapse because they're so intertwined, right? But they could have reforms. And Erasmus, um, he wanted to have some reforms. And Luther said, eventually Luther realized reforms are not going to work. They're just, they're not listening to us. So, well... Again, I always feel every week I don't do justice to the history enough because there's so many, so much and so much nuance. Um, so that will conclude the Middle Ages. Again, just think of it as what does a Christian civiliza- civilization look like on earth? And this is kind of the church's answer to it throughout history. Um, I didn't get too much into the Eastern Church as well, so their doctrine would develop in different ways and different understandings. Um, I'll see if I can try to come back to them a little bit. I have a really good friend who is an Orthodox, and we have very interesting discussions about ecclesiology, even salvation. They don't believe justification by faith alone. They don't see the atonement as penal. They have a completely different outlook on Christian life, so very interesting. So I didn't even get to them, but again, they're dealing with the Muslim advances throughout history, and so their theology would be shaped by that in, in a certain way. Um, and so again, from here on out, I'll try to do like this inverted V as we... Um, no, actually an actual V, as we get closer to the end of the class. I hope to finish everything up by early December. There will be one or two breaks there in between. I think we have a new member's reception one week, so there'll be a break there. Um, and again, so we're half at the halfway point. So any, any comments, concerns about class so far? I hope you guys are enjoying it. I'm 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 enjoying it. So
1: I really appreciate it because I feel like this is one area I've been pretty mm-hmm. ignorant in and even though you're doing this flyover, it makes it easier for someone new to it to make the vital
2: connections. So I do appreciate it.
0: So let me just share two sources especially for the middle ages I was using a lot to help one of them is uh, Robert Godfrey's church history series from Ligonier. It is hours and hours of awesome lectures on church history. Um, so if you ever get a chance to check those out and their video lectures or audio lectures, you can play them at 2X and get through it two times faster. <laughs> but he, he is an amazing teacher. And if you don't believe me, go talk to Nate Luswick, who has had him for one of his professors. So He's a, he's a really good teacher. The other one is a two-volume set called um, The Story of Christianity by uh, Justo Gonzalez. Had to take, had to read those during my classes, and I think Dennis actually read them through RTS. And he writes the history of Christian as stories. So they're like vignettes as they go through church history. So it's really easy to read very down to earth. So those are the two sources I'm leaning heavily on. So I don't want to I wanna give credit where credit is due, so I've gotten a lot of help from those guys. And then I've just been um, intertwining my own thoughts and insights into what I've been reading and studying. So just wanna put that out there. All right, so that wraps up today and next week on Reformation Sunday, we will cover the Reformation. So someone pray for us and we will get out of here.
2: Uh, see how we do a new bit of work uh, throughout church history, um, moving and protecting Gospel, the times that we look at, it. Um, not see, you know, always being protected, but it's here. We have it. Uh, the truth, but we thank you uh, that uh, you've always been faithful. Thank you for uh splash today, I trust that uh, there is uh, something at work here. And that we can uh, find uh, grace to reflect on this, uh, that it's a tool to us uh, to better understand your world and that for your world in Christ. Amen.